Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is entitled From Either Or to Both And. It's a guest essay by Deborah Kaur, professor of English in the English department at Eastern Kentucky University. Deborah Kaur is a Roman Catholic and holds a degree from Lexington Theological Seminary and is the author of the book, The Seminary Student Writes. Her essay is based upon the readings for Sunday, February 11, 2007. Studying introductory logic as a beginning college student many years ago, I learned to be suspicious of what was called the either-or fallacy. Arguments, I learned, were best phrased with a nuanced sense of possibility of outcome. Small wonder, then, that this week's readings take me aback. All three present the hearer with those supposedly invalid, fallacious statements. It's either or, this or that, us or them. Jeremiah's prophecies come at one of the hardest times in ancient Israel's troubled story, just before and after the fall of the southern kingdom to Babylon and the exile that followed. Jeremiah, unique among the prophets, is told not to marry or to have children. He's put in a position of unique isolation, and the word he receives is for everything to be entirely centered on God. Indeed, a curse is on those who trust mortals or lean for support on humankind. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. On the one side is God's way. Following God, one is blessed, like a green tree bearing fruit, 17 verse 8. The dichotomy is stark and crystal clear. Jeremiah's isolation comes about due to the sins of the people and the oncoming punishment. Thus his name becomes synonymous with a bitter rant when we speak of a Jeremiad. And indeed, what could be more bitter than isolating yourself? believing that the human heart is, as he says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, deceitful above all things. The second reading this week, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 to 20, also speaks of separation. St. Paul eloquently reminds the Corinthians that they must believe in the resurrected Christ, the heart of the gospel. If they don't, if they put themselves outside of this essential teaching, they are what he calls utterly lost, verse 18, and most to be pitied, verse 19. But, he argues as the letter continues in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the gospel reading from Luke, we hear the beloved Beatitudes. Early in Jesus' ministry, the people have come to be healed. Then they hear a sermon that begins a spiritual rather than a physical healing of four areas, need, hunger, grief, and shame. These are followed by the promise of woe to those who are now rich, those who are well-fed, laughing, and respected. As the Oxford Study Bible points out, the warnings have been raised to an eschatological threat. It's terror level orange, as our federal government might put it. Time to be watchful and make some changes for those who feel safe 
How do we read these warnings in this sharp have and have not division? And how can we best understand these statements as moral guides? Some of them seem to be out of our control. Is it really bad that I am laughing now? What does all that mean? Perhaps one answer lies in the context. As the verse, first verse tells us, Jesus is a hot commodity. At this stage of his ministry, he's announced his mission to the whole synagogue in chapter 4, 18 to 21. Escape their wrath and become his ministry of healing, healing lepers, Peter's mother-in-law, the paralytic, the man with the withered arm. No one is exempt from his scandalous love. Why wouldn't the crowds press in on him? Everyone has an ache or a pain, a sore back, a frightening lump, and Jesus cures them all. But he's more than a miraculous doctor. He calls sinners to repent, and he calls them to break down the isolation of their individual status. Although the Beatitudes appear to divide the world into two camps, the blessed and the woeful, in fact, they do the opposite. They remind us that all conditions are only temporary. The now woeful will be blessed, and the now fortunate will eventually be woeful. In fact, we are one community of the human condition. To become followers of Jesus, to repent, the rich must not just share their good fortune, but become not rich, take their place alongside the rest. The happy must erase the borders of their contentment and join the grieving. In other words, the true, deep listeners of the Christ must become one community. And so, either or becomes both and. For St. Paul, the breathless building of if statements in 1 Corinthians 15 leads to the community's rejection of wrong doctrine and to his ringing thanks be to God. Jeremiah is a bit harder. In her book, The Cloister Walk, Kathleen Norris describes the prophet as a necessary other who stands outside, and Jeremiah as a good voice responding to our violent world today. He's human. He's anguished. His writing strikes the apocalyptic note that comes only in the worst of times. We don't want to hear his either-or his anguish, his rejection of the human. After all, are we that bad? And if so, why prophesy to us? Perhaps the answer to Jeremiah's either-or lies in the very desperation of the times. How many of us, to tell the truth, pray most, or even only, when all else seems lost, when the best of our human agency has left us bereft, when God only is left to us, we find out who God is for us. And for Jeremiah, that God is utterly transformative, greening the deserts of our lives and making us fruitful in ways that no human comfort can. Like many people, I drive a car that has some extra features I don't fully understand. One of them is a little screen over the rearview mirror that gives me messages car door open, left rear tire low, or turn signal on. 
For the past few days, my little screen has simply read, Perform Service. Now, I've quite recently had the oil changed, tires rotated, antifreeze replaced, brakes and alignment checked. But what can the car want from me? Perform Service. Maybe I should have set a mass in the front seat. But maybe the car is giving me a gentle reminder of what we're all here for. As Wordsworth put it, those little unremembered acts of kindness and love. Acts that help me move from my blessedness into easing the woes of others. Doing what I can to bring fruitfulness into others' desert. Living compassionately in the kingdom. For further reflection, when in my life have I felt that my fellow human beings had what Jeremiah calls deceitful hearts? How did God comfort and sustain me in this desert? Where in my life am I among those currently blessed with goods and personal joys? How am I being called to share those blessings? What does it mean to believe the gospel, the good news, that Christ was truly raised from the dead? And for further reading, see R. Allen Culpepper, The New Interpreter's Bible, Volume 9. Loretta Dornish, A Woman Reads the Gospel of Luke. And Kathleen Norris, The Cloister Walk. Thanks to Professor Deborah Kaur, of Eastern Kentucky University for her essay, February 11th, 2007. For books this week, I review N.T. Wright, Simply Christian, Why Christianity Makes Sense, San Francisco, Harper and Row, 2006, 240 pages. My aim writes N.T. Wright, has been to describe what Christianity is all about, both to commend it to those outside the faith and to explain it to those inside. To do this, he adopts a three-part structure. In part one, which if this were a technical book would be called Natural Theology, Wright examines human experience and argues that most all people experience what he calls four echoes of a voice. He devotes one chapter to each of these four echoes. The longing for justice. The quest for spirituality. The hunger for relationships. And the beauty, in, in, in the delight in beauty. These voices, says Wright, point beyond themselves. And of course, he argues that they point to, but by no means prove, a creator. In the second part of the book, Wright introduces the central Christian belief about God, with two chapters each on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Part three then describes what it looks like in practice to follow Jesus, with treatments of worship, prayer, the Bible, and the church. Throughout his book, Wright emphasizes that the gospel is the kingdom of God, where heaven comes down to earth, and God's future invades our present. God invites us to receive this free grace and gift, and he also sends us into the world to make it a reality. 
And so we are not simply beneficiaries, but also responsible agents. Wright has written a simple book that avoids technical jargon. There are no footnotes at all, relatively few scripture quotations, no mention of figures from church history, and the avoidance of controversial subjects like universalism or the claims of other religions. Nor does he try to refute objections or contrary positions, except for an extended use of pantheism and deism as alternate worldviews. You'll not find a defense of miracles or response to the problem of evil. I read Wright's book as a more of a confession than what has traditionally been called an apologetic. And in that sense, it reminded me of Philip's words to Nathaniel in John chapter 146, Come and see. For the heavy lifting of a lifetime of discipleship, you'll need to read other, more critical treatments of the Christian faith. But for an uncluttered and winsome introduction, Simply Christian by N.T. Wright is a good beginning by a trustworthy guide. N.T. Wright, Simply Christian, Why Christianity Makes Sense. For film this week, I review The Triplets of Belleville from the year 2003. Writer and director Sylvain Chomet has created what many have hailed as one of the most creative animated films ever. The film, which has no dialogue, is full of sounds, barking dog, trains, frogs, jazz, and populated with exaggerated characters that are at once grotesque, hilarious, poignant, and deeply human. This satire follows the fortunes of an orphan boy named Champion, who, after obsessive compulsive training by his whistle-wielding grandmother, Madame Souza, enters the Tour de France. He's kidnapped in the middle of the race by square-shouldered, cigarette-smoking French mafiosos in sunglasses. These bad guys take Champion and two other cyclists to Belleville, a surreal world where, like horses in harnesses, they ride stationary bikes in a bedding parlor. But the grandmother and their faithful dog, Bruno, follow in hot pursuit, and with the help of the triplets of Belleville, three eccentric spinster burlesque buddies, they rescue Champion. This simple plot, though, doesn't even begin to suggest the surreal quality of this delightfully quirky film, which deserves its uniformly rave reviews. The Triplets of Belleville, from the year 2003. For poetry, we've posted The Holdfast by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. The Holdfast. I threaten to observe the strict decree of my dear God with all my power and might. But I was told by one it could not be, yet I might trust in God to be my light. Then will I trust, said I, in him alone. Nay, even to trust in him 
was also his. We must confess that nothing is our own. Then I confess that he my succor is. But to have not is ours, not to confess that we have not. I stood amazed at this, much troubled, till I heard a friend express that all things were more ours by being his. What Adam had and forfeited for all, Christ keepeth now, who cannot fail or fall. George Herbert, The Holdfast. And finally this week, we have a monthly music review by David Werther. This week, David Werther reviews the CD Vista by David Wilcox from the years 2005 and 2006. Acoustic singer-songwriter David Wilcox's Vista is an engaging and comforting CD. In the opening track, Get On, Wilcox describes the tension between heart and mind as he decides how to respond, quote, to this mystery that calls me from beyond the view, end quote. As he describes the situation, the choice is forced. For, quote, this ticket is good for just so long. I can think about it till this train is gone or just get on, end quote. The decision is momentous, and doesn't it make perfect sense that life turns on a point in time, and I know that this is mine. Wilcox is describing what the philosopher William James described as a quote-unquote genuine option, an opportunity to make an irrevocable and momentous choice on a matter that reason alone cannot decide. The rest of the CD suggests that Wilcox did not let the train leave without him. He writes about the wonder and beauty of creation. This is especially evident in Coming Alive in Vista. In the song Coming Alive, he sings of the comfort we find with our bodies entwined, opens the soul to the touch of a love that's divine, that's coming alive. This sort of love and comfort requires great vulnerability, as, it, as, is, as is evident in the song The Hard Part. He writes, You think your shame and deep disgrace are more than I can bear, but you can take me to your darkest place. I will meet you there. In a collection of 15 very strong songs, Vista is the masterpiece. Wilcox begins by describing the experience of a solitary climber reaching the crest of a mountain. Quote, And your expression showed the wonder of this place, looking westward with the sunlight on your face, at the wide open vista. The song then shifts to a hospital, and we realize that the climb is a metaphor for death, and the vista is what awaits us when we are finally crossing over to home. Though Vista is a celebration of the goodness of creation, Wilcox and his co-writers don't turn a blind eye to violence and destruction. And so, for example, while the song Party of One begins with, quote, skylight in my mind tonight, 
a window through the storm, end quote, in the following selection called Into One, the window was broken in its time to pray they're safe from war. And in the track Good Man, Wilcox describes some believers who live without tensions or doubts and the havoc that they wreck. Quote, but their devotion was unquestioned. Follow straight and never swerve. The devil always needs a good man in the worst sense of the word. The final track, Great Big World, provides both continuity and contrast with Vista. There is contrast that the subject of the song has his whole life before him, but continuity in the greatness and goodness of creation. Quote, it's a great big sky and a great big love for you. Vista is a lovely landscape, one that I'll enjoy for a long time to come. David Wilcox, Vista, as reviewed by David Werther. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 11th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.